Hey, this is Brian Golden, lead pastor of Centerpoint Church, and I just want to welcome you to our podcast. I also really want to thank you for taking the time to listen. And I want to let you know that now you can watch these messages as well, anytime and anywhere. And the easiest way to do that is on the Centerpoint Church app. In addition to that, the Centerpoint app is also the easiest way to stay connected with what's happening at Centerpoint. So go to your favorite app store, search Centerpoint Church Florida, and you'll find it right there. Most importantly, I really want to say if you're a longtime follower of Jesus, or maybe you're just investigating who Jesus is, I really hope this message encourages you to take your next step in your journey of faith or in your journey of investigating faith. Thanks again for listening. We're in this um, series talking about the life of David, and maybe it's been a little bit different because there's a lot of narrative, but I, I just wanted to, I wanted to engage with this story, and it's been cool. I, I love the diversity of our church. Some of you have heard the life of David like 400 times. Others of you, after the first two weeks, are like, I've never heard that story before. David and Goliath, like I thought that was from a business book, but like that's in the Bible. And so I love that. I love that we have that kind of church. Here's what I want to talk about today as we end this series, and I think, I know that this is so relevant because every once in a while, you get reminded that life ultimately um, trumps your plans. Like, okay, can we just get around this idea? Life rarely goes as plans. Like how many of you are huge planners? My wife will give you like an organizational MBA level discourse on organization. Like we go away with our kids and I mean the level of six page documents of instructions and like clothes in baggies uh, like and they're labeled by like Tuesday a.m. Tuesday p.m. backup outfit. Here's another page of instruction. Like it is off the rails. It's crazy. And so I'm just not organized like that. So some of you are, but here's the reality. No matter how organized you are, no matter how planned you are, eventually your life will disrupt your plans. And that might be the decisions that you make. A lot of times it's decisions that other people make that affect us, us or it's just life in general. And here's the reality when that happens. And I think all of us at some level feel this, is that sometimes you get to a place because of that reality where there are certain dreams that you were holding on to and that you were going after and you suddenly realize that those dreams won't come true. And even more than that, and maybe more devastating sometimes than that, is that there are certain dreams that can't come true. And that's just real. Like that's just something that we feel. Like the marriage is, is not what you thought it would be. The high chair is never gonna get used. You know, the prodigal son or daughter is never gonna come back. The business that you have put everything into, it failed. The education that you had in mind and getting it accepted, you're, you're never gonna get accepted. It's not gonna work out. She said no. And there's some dreams that maybe you've, you've poured a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into. You spent a lot of years imagining, and now you're at a place where not only will that dream not come true, that dream can't come true. And it's in that moment a lot of times where we just face this dynamic, if we are honest, where, where we kind of look at God and go, God, I, I kind of feel like at some level you didn't speak audibly, but you kind of promised me this. Or if we're really real and we don't want to admit it a lot of times, God, I feel like you owe me. I feel like I've tried to be faithful. I feel like I've tried to finish it. I feel like I've tried to do the right thing. And, and I, like I've done everything that I could do and my dream still died. 
And that's just real. Like we want a lot of messages on God's destiny and will for your life and how it's gonna end out amazing and your next season is gonna be the best season ever. And that may be true, but your next best season may be when we leave this life and we're face to face with Jesus and every promise is fulfilled and everything is made right. But in a sin infested world, there's no promise that we're gonna walk through the next season and it's gonna be the next season that's gonna be the best season of our life. Instead, it might be the season where some dreams die. And you never get those dreams back. And, and, and so here's the question that I just wanna ask because the other thing is you get in that space a lot of times and then you look around at other people and it feels like, this is probably not true, but it feels like everybody else's dream is coming true. Specifically around the area where there's angst. Like you started the business at the same time, they've been wildly successful, you've already filed bankruptcy. They've already had kids, they've already got married, and it feels like everybody else's dream is coming true. So I just wanna ask this really real, really raw question as we look at the last narrative in the life of David. What do you do when your dreams die? Like, what do you do when your dreams die? You pick up the narrative of David and where we've looked the last two weeks, you can go back to any podcast catcher and get those or go to the CC app. But David basically... Um, because of no choice of his own, basically bad decisions by Saul, the king of Israel. Initially, David is sent into the wilderness. He's sent into hiding. He's a refuge. He's running. And he gets into that place and he does what a lot of us do when we're alone, we're isolated or afraid. He panics. He feels like he's got to do something. He feels like he's got to control the outcome. And so David makes some really bad decisions that compound his problem and lead to more regret. But David learned from those experiences. But then you fast forward and after the incident last week, eventually David does become king, which is what God had promised. And Saul ends up getting killed. David becomes the king. And, And David this time makes some decisions that weren't the fault of somebody else. They were his decisions that sabotaged his own dreams. And he learned some stuff in the process there too. But he made some decisions that would follow him for the rest of his life. But he learned some things that by the end of his life, he didn't repeat those mistakes. You you maybe know the story. I'm not going to assume that you do. But there's this famous story where um, David sends his men off to war. This is now like um, 22 years or so after he becomes king to fast forward. David's in his 50s now. Sends his guys off to war to battle. David doesn't go with them. We don't really know why. Um, it may be because in that culture, if you're in your 50s, um, you are old. I'm not saying you are now. I'm saying in that culture, 50 was like the new 90 back in the day. So David was, it wasn't like 50 today. So David stayed at home. And then there's this famous story that maybe you've heard about, right? Where David's out one night, he's got something over the rocks, hanging out on the terrace. And he stares across and he sees this woman bathing on the roof by the name of Bathsheba. And this is a side note, because what David does next is a horrendous, just abuse of power and influence. But just, just the one kind of critique of Bathsheba is like, take that inside and help a brother out for, like, for a second. Because um, Bathsheba's bathing on the roof. So I guess that doesn't resonate with anybody else, but I just feel like as a guy, she should do something about that. So David looks across to the other terrace and he sees her, and he, so he says to one of his guys, I want you to go find out who she is. And so his guys go out to find out who she is, and they come back, and they're like, that is Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. Keyword, David, wife. Uriah, who works for you, who's out to battle right now. Here's the problem. God had told Israel, I don't want you to have a king because I want to be your king, and I want you, above everything else, I want you to trust me. And by the way, there's some side effects of having an earthly king. One of the side effects is, or the negatives, is you can never tell the king No. So David says, I want you to go get Uriah's wife and bring her to me. And nobody tells the king no. And they go get Bathsheba and they bring her in and 
and they have this affair, probably it lasts several nights. And finally, she gets double lines on the pregnancy test. Is it double lines? Okay. I only find out after the fact. I don't know how the process works. It's just like, we're having another one. I'm like, so, um, so I don't know how that, but double lines on the pregnancy test. And David realizes he's got a problem. And so he immediately goes into devising a plan and trying to control the outcomes again. And so he, he basically sends for Uriah's, um, or Bathsheba's husband Uriah to come back from battle fighting for David. And they have a meal together. And he's like, hey, Uriah, why don't you go home? You've been out of battle. It's, you've been away a long time. You've been deployed for a while. Why don't you go home and spend some time with your wife? Whatever that looks like for you. What, rose petals, JT, like what, whatever. Go home, spend some time with your wife, and then come back, and then we send you back out to battle. And Uriah is so noble, he doesn't do it. He's like, my men are out to battle. I'm not going to go home and be with my wife. David's like, okay, take two. He has dinner again, tries to get um, Uriah drunk, sends Uriah home again. Hey, hey, like go spend some time with your wife. Like you, 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 got, you need this. You've been away for a while. Go spend time. Uriah doesn't, again, he sleeps on the doorstep and he doesn't go in to his wife because I, my men are out of the battle. I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna do this. And David finally feels desperate and so he goes into planning what is just unimaginable and he, he writes this little letter, he seals it, he gives it to Uriah and he says, Uriah, take that out to your commander Joab who's very close with David and unbeknownst to Uriah, he takes his own death notice out to the battlefield. Because on it, it says, hey Joab, I want you to put Uriah at the front of the fiercest fighting, withdraw the flanks, Sure, death is going to happen. And because nobody could tell the king no, Joab did exactly what David said. And Uriah was killed. And at this point, David thinks, solved it. Problem over. The only problem is, in a slave culture specifically, the walls talk. And so even though on the out, outward, David looked like magnanimously, he's going to take in the, the, the widow who's heartbroken and become his wife. How amazing is David? The walls talk. In fact, this is just a good lesson for all of us. The scripture talks about, as Paul talks about in the New Testament, that when you are hiding something for a period of time, eventually that thing has a way of being exposed. No matter how careful you are, no matter how much you think you can circumvent it, no matter how, what lengths you go to. And in fact, Paul says this kind of a warning to us. It's better if you reveal what you're hiding than have God reveal what you're hiding. One goes better than the other. Not because he doesn't love you, but because in an extreme act of his grace, he will save you from you sometimes before you get too far down that road. And so... Suddenly, people find out, because people find out, and Nathan the prophet comes to David, and he tells the story, because you really couldn't communicate with the king directly, and he tells the story about David, unbeknownst to David, and he gets the end of the story, and David is so angry about the circumstances of this made-up story, and then Nathan kind of drops the mic and says, hey, David, that's you. I just told a story about you. I know. God knows. And it says that David is heartbroken. And it's the moment he realizes, after all the emotion has passed, what in the world did I do? And can, can, can I just say this just real quick, and, and then we'll dive into it, is, is every sin, and if you, you have struggle, struggle with the, the word sin, I get it, but the dysfunction that you felt when you stared up at the ceiling knowing you've let you down and you've let other people down, you can use whatever word you want, I'll use sin. Every sin comes prepackaged with a consequence. Every sin. And a lot of times it's not, God's not trying to get back. It is the natural sow and reap and cause and effect, but it is leading somewhere. It's a destination and it's hard because it's never immediate. You sow and reap your way into good. You sow and reap your way into things you wish not you could rewind and it's never in an instant. 
But Nathan says to David in 2 Samuel 12, 11, this is what the Lord says, David, out of your own household, I'm gonna bring calamity on you. In verse 12, you, you did it in secret, but I'm gonna do this thing in the future in broad daylight before all Israel. Because David, you're the king and you're accountable to the whole kingdom. There's a different level of responsibility. Verse 13, and then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And this is so crazy because David is such a weird juxtaposition of like these massive failures and these other times where once there's repentance and brokenness, David doesn't try to change the law like other kings. He submits himself to it and he never confused, even with all his mistakes, that he was a king, but he was not the king. And David is broken. He realized like, I I've sinned against God. Here's the crazy thing. Just check this out for a second. Dude basically got hired a hitman in essence to kill somebody's husband, has an affair, had some other people end up getting put to death because of his lies earlier in his early 20s. And at the end of David's life, this was not the beginning, God says of David, hey, this dude is a dude after my own heart. What? Because the reality with which God sees the whole scope of our lives in our heart in terms of where we're at and what we're willing to do when we are broken and repentant is kind of staggering because we don't see as he sees. And so even with all of that dysfunction, David's heart, when there was brokenness and repentance, David said, I'm gonna submit my life to God to the point of even with all of that on his rap sheet at the end of his life, God says, this dude with all this stuff, and I know about all of it, was actually a man after my heart. This screwed up a lot. And so Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not gonna die. But he goes on to tell him that there's gonna be consequences for taking the life of Uriah. And so a year goes by, and this is the problem with decisions, man. They're made in a moment, but they don't stay in that moment. A decision is not a circumstance, it's an event that leads somewhere in the future. And then two years go by, and then five years go by, and eventually 10 years go by. And David's just kind of doing his thing as king and at some level life has gotten back to normal. And then finally, the consequences took hold and they turned David's life upside down. And it's the moment that David realizes that a lot of the dreams that he had for his life are not gonna come true. His oldest son comes on the screen by the name of Amnon and he begins to have this infatuation and this, this like just lust that starts to overtake him for his half-sister Tamar. And I'm not gonna tell any jokes about this about southern states because I did that at 1045 last week and it was inappropriate so um, Amnon started to have this th I mean and it's just weird and so he devises this plan and says to, to David his father hey I, I'm sick and he pretends to be sick would you send Tamar my half-sister in so she can like feed me nurse me back to hell? like it's just a strange it's a, a game I'm not a Game of Thrones like advocate because I, I try to stay away from soft porn but like it's a it's Game of Thrones-esque kind of thing and um, so so there he is, and Amnon creates this whole kind of thing. And, and while she comes in to take care of him, he's lying about being sick. He tries to sleep with her. It's just weird. And in 2 Samuel 13, 12, it says, no, this is Tamar, my brother, by the way. Don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Do not do this wicked thing, but verse 14, but he refused to listen to her since he was stronger than she. And he raped her. And the next verse is so gut-wrenching, just quick. A lot of times the thing that you actually pursue and is the thing or the person that is kind of your rebellion against God, on the other side of making that decision or pursuing that person, the thing that fills your heart is actually hatred for the very thing that you wanted. And the reason that is, is because when you finally get to that place and kind of wake up about what you're doing, it's not hatred at them, it's hatred at you. 
And it's why some of you are in a circumstance or a situation or, or you're, you're in a relationship with somebody that reminds you of some regrets and some decisions that you have made and it's not maybe even on them. And there's this weird dynamic in your relationship that they can't solve and you can't solve it and you just seem to be angry a lot and you think, it's at them, but it's really at you because you've made some decisions. You've willfully headed down a road and that very thing that you use as the source of your rebellion, once you kind of wake up to the reality, it's not what I thought becomes the very source of your anger, but the anger is actually pointed at you. So verse 15, Amnon hated her because Amnon hated himself with an intense hatred. And in fact, he hated her more than he loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, Get out of here. It's crazy. And, she, and Tamar is devastated because she knows she's never going to marry in this culture. That it's all over for her. And eventually, because secrets don't stay there in the palace, it gets back to David. And David, rightfully so, is furious. And this is so crazy. He does nothing. He does nothing about it. And we don't really know why. I think the reason is David feels like he has lost all moral authority. And what right do I have to tell them how to live their life or make moral decisions with what I've already done in my life? And then at this point, David does nothing. And then Absalom comes onto the scene. And this is the, the third oldest. We think the second oldest son has died. And so he's next in line after Amnon. And Absalom is actually a sister of Tamar. They have the, the same parents. So he's not a half or he's a half, not a half brother, but a full brother. He takes Tamar in to live with him and he does nothing just like David. And he allows a year to go by, nothing happens. Two years to go by. And it's just one of like those family secrets in the past. Nothing's gonna come of it. But all the while Absalom, the third oldest has been calculating and scheming. And so finally, after kind of everybody's forgotten about the incident, Tamar's been living with him for the last couple of years. He throws this massive party for the whole family and invites Amnon. And at the party, they get Amnon really drunk. And in just the right time, Absalom sends his men in and he kills his brother. And all the rest of the family and the other brothers, they all flee. And Absalom ends up fleeing and he goes north to modern day Syria. And eventually the word gets back to David. And David, again, is heartbroken and he's angry because now his oldest son has been murdered by what we find out is his favorite son. Talk about family dysfunction. And David does nothing about it. And eventually three long years go by and finally David invites Absalom back into the palace, but he doesn't talk to him. He basically puts him on another side of the palace. Absalom is under house arrest. David never talk, calls for him, never talks to him. And finally Absalom, Absalom is so furious that he decides the best way to do this is to go to Joab, who he knows is close with David and burn down Joab's farm. This is in the Bible, you should read the Bible. He burns down Joab's farm. And so Joab confronts Absalom like, dude, what are, you, what are you burning my farm down for, number one? And number two, what do you want? And, and Joab's like, listen, or Absalom's like, listen, Joab, you've got to get my dad to talk to me. I'm under house arrest in the empire. I haven't talked to him for three years. I can't live like this. And so Joab sends a woman to David because, again, you can't talk to the king directly. And, and the woman basically comes up with a story about David without telling David it's David. And she tells David the story, and then at the end, again, Mike dropped, and he's like, David, it's, I'm talking about you. And David's like, did, did Joab send you? And so finally, David and Joab talk, and Joab, who's very close with David, one of David's commanders, says, hey, David, you, you got to reach out to your son. Like, I know what's happened, but he's living in your empire. He's under house arrest, basically, and, and you, like, you need to invite him in. 
And so there's this powerful scene where David invites Absalom in, who's killed his oldest son, Absalom the third son. And David puts his hands on Absalom, which is a sign in their culture of I forgive you. But it didn't reconcile the relationship. And in fact, Absalom is still furious and he's so hurt because after that day where they meet up, David again never talks to him and never calls for him again. And Absalom is so furious, he begins to devise a plan of how he's going to overthrow his own dad. And he starts for the next four years going out to the temple gates. And before people can get all the way to the palace in order to have their case heard, because the king basically would hear and try cases, Absalom decided to do it on his own. So he'd stand at the gate. He would hear the cases that people brought. He would um, administer some kind of verdict. And the scripture says he stole the hearts of the people. He literally stole influence and stole power because Absalom became the go-between and everybody trusted him. Everybody leaned in to Absalom. To the point that after doing this for four years, 2 Samuel 15, 10 says this. Then Absalom, the son of David, sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, I spent four years gaining influence and now the time's right. As soon as you hear the trumpets say, Absalom is king in Hebron. And here's what Absalom knew. Everybody would believe it. Because nobody had the news. So when they heard it, they immediately rejoiced, thinking, well, some, for some reason, David's abdicated the throne. Some, David's sick. David can't do it anymore. Maybe it's because he's getting up there in years. But obviously, Absalom is the king, and so we need to celebrate that. And so in that moment, when they had the trumpets go off, the whole kingdom thought David has relinquished his throne, and now Absalom is on the throne, is next in line. And so 16 years after Bathsheba, David's life is turned upside down. And his third oldest son has killed his youngest son, who's his favorite son. And now he's inciting a civil war. And it says in verse 13 of 2 Samuel 15, a messenger came and told David, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom, your son. And David said to all of his officials who were there with him in Jerusalem, come, we gotta flee or none of us are gonna escape Absalom. We gotta leave immediately and move quickly or he's gonna overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. And so there David is again. He feels like, I think in some ways that God's abandoned him, even though this is choices that he's made and he runs and he flees and he's a refuge on the run again. But this time he's not 22 years old, this time he's 61 years old. And this is the moment that David realizes that there are some dreams that can't ever, ever come true for me. And this is not what I saw for my life This is not what I saw for this kingdom. This is not what I saw for my family. And there's no way for me to be able to fix this. And this may not be some of you, but I know in this moment that this is some of you on radio, podcasts, or you're listening right now, and this is exactly where you are. This is exactly where you are. And, And you feel in some ways heartbroken. In other cases, you feel anger, and you haven't admitted some of that anger. In other cases, you feel very, very frustrated about that dream that has died or is dying. And it's just natural where in some cases, it's not even decisions that you made. It's some things that have happened and you're going, God, I've done everything that I could. I've done everything that I could to contribute to this. I've tried to be faithful. I've tried to be patient. I've tried to reconcile. I've tried to forgive them. I've tried to raise them right. I was honest and I lost my job anyway. God, I feel like I've done everything that I could possibly do. And here I am. 
And my dream is dead, and it's not that it won't come true. It can't come true. There's no way to revive it. And here's the thing in those moments, and this is what David experienced at previous seasons in his life. When you feel bad, when you feel those moments of that thing that I had pursued, it's not going to happen, is when you reach for something to feel better. And a lot of times in those moments with all the emotion, that thing that makes you feel better is the very thing that's going to compound your problem and create a lot more regret. And David's like, I've been here before. And it's easy to think right now because my dream is dead. What's the use? Where's God? What the heck is he doing in my life? I mean, he seemed to peace out a while ago. And so what does it even matter? And David's like, but I'm not going to make that mistake again. Because I've been here before and I've experienced this before. And by the way, experience means absolutely nothing. I had a prof in seminary who said only evaluated experience makes you better. Experience by itself just makes you older evaluated experience makes you wiser. And David's like, I've made a lot of terrible decisions. There's a lot that I can connect the dots back to go, I'm at some level where I am because of me, but I'm not gonna compound the problem and I'm not gonna make the same decisions that I made when I was in my 20s. I'm not gonna reach for things that's only gonna create more regret. And so David in 2 Samuel 15, 23, it says, the whole countryside wept aloud as the people passed by. And the king also crossed the Kidron, Kidron Valley, and all the people moved on toward the wilderness, meaning David's like, we gotta go, and we don't know where we're going, but we just have to leave. In verse 24, Zadok was there too, and all of the Levites, meaning the people <clears throat> that took care of the temple, the priests, were with him, and they were carrying, this is so important, the Ark of the Covenant of God. <clears throat> now, this is the thing we just skip right over. But this is so huge because in, in ancient culture in the Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant of God literally represented the presence and the power of God. And so the people who watched the Ark of the Covenant leaving, it felt to them emotionally, and there was some truth to this, that, that God's power and presence was leaving the kingdom because that's what it represented. And David in that moment felt like the whole thing was kind of manipulative. And so it says in verse 25, David the king said to Zadok, take the Ark of the covenant of God back into the city. And I'm telling you, we missed this, but just stay with me for a second. Everybody who's with David, their hearts sunk because literally that was their confidence. We don't have military might. We don't have numbers. We're fleeing. We're not organized. The only thing we've got is the Ark of the Covenant of God and the power and the promise that God's gonna be with us. And now that you're calling for that to be taken back into the empire means, David, you're giving up. It's the only thing we've got. And David says this, and this is so powerful. Listen to David's explanation. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he'll bring me back. He'll restore my kingdom. He'll avenge. He'll make things right. He'll let me see his dwelling place again, but verse 26. But if he says to me, and this is so difficult maybe to grasp, if I'm not pleased with you, David says, then I'm ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to me or what seems good to him. In essence, David's going, this is so hard. This is not what we want. These aren't honestly the messages that are that popular to teach. If, just, if you just have enough faith, God's gonna do it. If you just believe it, God's gonna make it come true. If, if you just hang in and are faithful, God's gonna lead you to that destiny. But then there's the reality and David's feeling it in this moment. No, no, sometimes it's just not gonna come true. 
Sometimes the dream's just gonna die and it's never gonna be able to be revived again. And what David emulates in this moment is, God, it is really, really difficult, but not my will, but your will be done. And David in this moment has lost his world, but he did not lose his confidence in God. Like this is the moment where he chose not to abandon God when it felt like God had chose to abandon him. And that's right where some of you are at right now. That's right on the line of where you're at and you're teetering over, am I gonna keep going? If, am I gonna remain faithful or if I'm gonna leave? Because in this moment, it feels like God has chosen to abandon me. So Absalom takes the kingdom The only problem is Absalom doesn't have the king. And to be considered legit, the undisputed king, you had to kill the king in that day. And so then Ahithophel comes on the scene. And Ahithophel was one of David's most trusted advisors up into that point. He's probably the the um, grandfather of Bathsheba. He was very close to David. But when he found out that Absalom was taking the throne, Ahithophel decided, I'm going to take Absalom's side. And I'm going to basically, I'm going to get in on this new king. And so Ahithophel becomes Absalom's advisor. So Absalom says, okay, Ahithophel. What do you think we should do? David's on the run with his men. What's our next move? And Ahithophel, without thinking, is like, listen, I know David. I know his skill as a warrior and a commander. You got to go after him now. They're not organized. They had to leave in a hurry. They haven't been able to get anything together. And so if you don't take him down now, I don't know if you're going to get a chance. Because if you give David time to organize, lights out, it's over. And so David hears about this, hears that Ahithophel has switched side, and then another guy comes on the screen, Hushi, and he was one of David's trusted advisors, and he decided to stay with David. But when David heard, he said, okay, Hushi, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go back to Absalom. I want you to pretend to still be with him and be one of his advisors, and then when he asks you for his advice, I want you to sabotage all their plans. So Hushi goes back, he gets in good with Absalom, and Absalom finally asks him, hey, what do you think I should do? What do you think our next move is? And in 2 Samuel 18.5, or actually 17.7, it says this, Hushi replied to Absalom after he asked for advice, the advice that Hithophel has given you is not good. You know your father, you know his men, they're fighters, man. And as fierce as a wild bear robbed of her cubs, like that's how David's gonna come back at you. And besides, your father is an experienced fighter. He's not gonna spend the night with troops. Even now, he is hidden in a cave or some other place. And so basically, Hushi says, you need to wait, you need to gather your men, and then you need to attack. And Absalom's like, that's a great idea. I like that advice better than Ahithophel's advice. And at that moment, Ahithophel knew it's over. David is such a skilled commander and warrior. If you give him time to mobilize, even with less amount of men, he's going to take you down. And Ahithophel knew his career was over. And literally, the Bible talks about he leaves and goes and hangs himself. And David knows he's got to defend himself, so he divides his army into thirds, and then he gives the command to all his people who are there to go out and to run down Absalom, but he says this before they leave. He gives these very specific instructions, 2 Samuel 18.5. You still with me? Okay, not sure here at North, South. I'm, I'm trusting you are. Be gentle with the young man Absalom. By the way, my son, for my sake. Meaning when you catch up to him, don't hurt him. Bring him back alive. So all the troops heard the king giving orders concerning Absalom to each of the commanders. And David's men insisted that David not go to battle. And so verse 6, David's army marched out of the city to fight Israel. And the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. And this, we just ride right over it, but this is why this is so important. Which meant, because the battle happened in the forest, numbers meant nothing. 
It meant tactical skills and organization meant everything. And David had those in spades. Nobody was going to be out, be a, I don't know what I'm trying to say. I was looking for a word like tactical, wasn't there for me. So like nobody was going to outplan David. And so in that moment, they realize like we're sunk. And in fact, it talks about that the forest basically swallowed up these men. It took them down because they were brought down by long hanging branches and by the marsh. And David was so organized, was so tactically brilliant that even though he had way less men, he was able to override Israel. And it says in verse seven, their troops were routed by David's men. There was casualties so great that 20,000 men fell. And then verse eight, the battle spread over the whole countryside and the forest swallowed up more men that day than the sword. And eventually they ran down Absalom and they caught him. And rather than Absalom being a prisoner of war, Joab, David's chief captain, kills Absalom. And word gets back to David that his son is dead. And it says that David is devastated. In fact, he mourns to such a great degree, Joab has to go to David and say, David, I know it's your son, you gotta knock it off. Because you're about to lose all of your warriors because they feel like you'd rather wish, you wish that they were dead rather than Absalom being dead. And they're about to basically leave the kingdom and leave you on your own. So you, you've got to knock it off. Nobody's even celebrating victory because of you. And it says that David eventually assumed the role as king of Israel just like had been promised. And then nine years later, and kind of a tragic end, and nine years later at 70 years old, David dies. And here's what I love. And if you're skeptical about the scriptures, you should just consider this. Here's what I love. That the biographers of David's story made it so unbelievably authentic. Because at that time, you just airbrushed history. You just made the king look amazing. And they go to zero lengths to hide any of his flaws and any of his failures. Like no lengths. It's just like... This is why I think there's legitimacy to the scripture. This is the guy that is the most central guy to the story of Jesus other than Jesus, where a promise is made through the generations that there's gonna be a kingdom and eventually this king is gonna come and through this king, he's gonna be in terms of earthly kind of ideas, he's gonna be the guy that through his line, the Messiah is gonna come. And one day when that Messiah who's been predicted for thousands of years come, he's gonna come into the city of David, in the line of David, the guy who lied and had about 84, five people killed, the guy who ultimately committed murder, the guy who had an affair, the guy who had these epic failures and that at some level was able to be broken and was able to find his way back into repentance. And God was able to say about him at the end of his life with all of that, which is unbelievable, you are a man after my own heart, but here's all of the flaws. Here's all of the face plans. Here's all of the crazy stuff he did. And yet God used him and chose him. And several thousand years later in the the city of David, a donkey came riding into town and a Messiah was born through his line. And here's all the story. Here's all of the flaws. Here's all of the epic. It just wouldn't go down that way unless you are God and you're trying to write a story for the world to know that there is extravagant grace available. And even in the midst of unbelievable hurt and unbelievable dysfunction that you chose on your own, God can work something out of it. In David's case, he worked a Messiah out of it that save the world from their sin. But here's my point, and I'll get ready to close, that with all of David's flaws, with all of David's failures, this weird, it's hard to reconcile some of it because the story's so messy, that with all of that, David 
when he finally repented, in those moments where he had gone epically off the rails, finally kind of got his wits about him and realized what he had done, in those moments, he never lost his confidence in God. In fact, the foundation of David's faith and the foundation of our faith is not answered prayers or happily ever after endings. And I know that's an easy message to preach. That's a message that a lot of you maybe have heard forever. In fact, some of you are angry at God because you were sold some kind of idea that if you just have enough faith, if you just believe enough, if you're just faithful enough, if you just keep going enough, that eventually God's gonna answer all your dreams. God's gonna fulfill that destiny. God's gonna bring that thing to pass. And now you're angry at God about promises that God never made. Jesus was straight up. In this world, it's gonna be hard. It's gonna hurt sometime. Some of those dreams are not gonna come true. And here is the basis of your faith. It's not wrapped around answered prayers and fulfilled dreams. It's wrapped around the fact that God came through Jesus and he did something in history to die for all of your sin on the cross. And then he walked out of a grave historically and literally alive. And now in those moments where he feels absent and he feels silent and the dream is dying or the dream is already dead, you can walk forward and be faithful. You cannot abandon. You can stay in the relationship anyway. You can keep praying anyway. You do not have to lose faith. You can keep going. You can still believe that he is good, not because you see him in the moment, not because it's working out, not because the dream came to fruition the way you thought. It's because God did something 2,000 years ago and is the megaphone through every generation and every season. I walked out of a grave alive after dying for you. And when I died for you, I proved that I am for you. And in those moments where you do not see me realize you serve a resurrected savior and he's going to resurrect all things one day that dream is going to be resurrected what you were created to be universal flourishing and wholeness in genesis 1 you're going to experience that i'm going to wipe away every tear i'm going to give you a new body i'm going to restore you to what your heart longs for because eternity has been set in your heart but it may not happen right now and if it doesn't happen right now it's not because god has abandoned you and in fact david would say nothing could be further from the truth and your unanswered prayers and your unfulfilled dreams say nothing about the goodness of God. They say nothing about the presence of God. They say nothing about the faithfulness of God. And in fact, David would be the quickest to tell you, when you feel like God is absent, when you feel like God is apathetic, that he just doesn't care, for some of you, because you were sold some version of scripture that doesn't exist, that you feel like God is angry, David would say, nothing could be further from the truth. When you feel forsaken, you're mistaken. And when you wrap your faith in fulfilled dreams and answered prayers, like you're set up for disappointment because Jesus said, listen, because of a sin-infested world, there's pain and there's dysfunction and there's dreams that die and there's things that don't meet your expectation. It's why I came. And it's why I'm gonna do what you couldn't do on your own. And it's why I'm gonna return you to what ultimately I want for your life. But until then, I think the best thing we could do is to adopt David's attitude when everything is out of control to go back to these verses in 2 Samuel 15, 25. This is so powerful. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he'll bring me back. If I find favor, God can restore the marriage. God can revive the business. God can bring her home. 
God can change financially where we're at. God can do something physically. God can heal me emotionally. If I find favor, God can do it. But verse 26, and this is so hard. But let him do to me, because he's God and I'm not, whatever seems good to him. God, not my will, but yours be done. And I might be in a season right now where I don't really understand what you're doing. And if I allow myself to go there, you seem a little absent. And you seem a little apathetic because I've been screaming and crying and praying and I don't feel like you're answering or hearing me. But even if I lose what feels like my world, I will not lose my confidence in God because it's not wrapped up in my fulfilled dreams or answered prayers. And it's why David could pen to circle back around to how we started the series in Psalm 25, one. And you, Lord, and you, Lord God, I put my trust. And you, Lord God, I, when things are flying out of control, when I don't understand, when a dream has died, when it's not gonna happen for me, I trust in you, Lord, and my hope is in you. Not my answered prayers, not my fulfilled dreams, not my reconciled relationship, not that I, I, it turned out the way I wanted with my kids, not financially, it's where I wanted. I didn't think we'd be living here. I didn't think I'd be struggling with this. I didn't think we'd be walking through this. But in spite of all of that, my hope is in you all day long, even when the days are really long. And I just wanna tell you, as we end, you are surrounded by people. In our campuses, you're listening somewhere and, and you bump shoulders with these people. You're surrounded by people where that is their story. And if you were to listen to them, they've got some stories of some pretty powerful dreams they spent a lot of their life pursuing that died. And it did not alter their confidence in God. In fact, their confidence in God is stronger than ever because they didn't wrap their faith in fulfilled dreams or answer prayers. And I know the question then is, okay, well, why believe? I, like, I don't know if I like that version of God, and I get it. That's, we we kind of create our own version, walk away to go, I, I, just, I just don't think that that's true. And yet it's the only version of God that exists. I, there is trouble in this world. Not every dream is going to be fulfilled, but one day, one day it's going to be different. And so why believe? Because there's a God, and he's revealed himself, and he loves you. And come on, and I'm going to close with this. He was doing what you needed before you even knew you needed it. He was doing what you needed before you even wanted it. In fact, there's been other seasons of our lives and I'm in this with you. I didn't want the presence of God. I wasn't asking where God was at. I didn't want God to be around. I didn't want God to be driving home with me at that point. I didn't wanna feel his presence. I didn't wanna feel his activity. And God is going, I was there then. When you didn't want me, I was there. When you do want me, I'm still there. And your faith is not based on your feeling or your seeing my activity or what I'm doing in the moment. When you weren't even asking, I was at work. And now that you are asking, but you don't see me, I am at work. When you you were faithless, I was still being faithful. And when you let go in that season of your life, I didn't let go of you. And when you lost hope in me and in you, I never lost hope in you. And I did something in history by walking out of a grave alive so that even now in this moment, you may not see it, but you already know how the story ends. I am with you, I am good, I am for you. And one day I'm gonna complete everything I started. You don't need to see me now. There's a resurrection that happened in history and one day, 
I'm going to be with Jesus. He's going to take me home or he's going to come back. He's going to wipe away every tear. He's going to fulfill every dream. He's going to move me into a place where it's eternity forever and I'm with him and it's amazing. And until then, I'm going to be faithful when I don't see him. I'm going to be faithful when life is hell. I'm going to be faithful and I'm going to cling to him when everybody else is saying abandon him because I'm not clinging to answered prayers. I'm not clinging to fulfilled dreams. I'm clinging to a resurrected Savior that says I did something in history. Trust me when you don't feel me and you don't see me. That's the reason you can get up in the midst of whatever you're going through and say, I trust in you, Lord my God. And my hope is in you all day long. And despite everything, God, not my will, but your will be done. Even when I don't understand what you're doing. Would you stand with me wherever you're at, at both of our campuses? And I'd love for you to get engaged in this moment right now if you're listening somewhere. And I say this every week. I, if we just, out of respect, as much as possible, stay where we're at for just sensitivity to what God's doing in the room with other people around you. This is not a show where we come and consume and show up late and, and leave early and hear jokes and get entertained by good music. We've come to, to meet with Jesus. So I think we should be as followers of Jesus, and this doesn't apply to anybody else, but as followers of Jesus, we should be the most engaged people in the room, praying for those around us, holding up those around us, inviting God in to do what he wants to do in our own heart because it's not about everybody else in the room. It's about what God wants to do in us personally. And there's some people in this moment, like this is the moment where they're at the pref, they're at the, they're right at the edge of, of making a decision about faith and whether they will surrender. And I just wanna give you that opportunity as we close that you're in a place right now and the promise of God's power, God's presence, God's faithfulness is to those who recognize, you know what, there, there's some stuff in my life, there's been some sin in my life, I don't measure up to perfection. Nobody has to convince me of that. And I believe that Jesus died on the cross for all of my sin. And, and I believe that he rose again from the grave three days later. And, and so the starting place for you is to make a transfer of trust from you trying to earn your way to God to what God has done for you through Jesus. And so if this is that moment, this is the starting place for God to work in your life and begin to lead you on this journey to go, man, I, I need a relationship with Jesus. And it's personal. It's not based on your family heritage, your grandmother, your catechism, the class that you took, your faithful attendance. Jesus says in light of all of eternity, that means nothing. That's the outflow of belief. That's not the means to belief. It is by faith on the basis of what Jesus has done by grace, which means you couldn't earn it, you can't do anything to keep it. And so right now in this moment, wherever you are, I just wanna invite you in and you can pray this prayer after me. It's not the prayer that saves you, but it's your declaration of just faith and dependence on God. Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for my sin. I believe that you rose again. And right now I'm not trusting me, I'm trusting what you have done for me. So one more time, if that's you, if this is the moment for you, Jesus, I believe that you came and you are God. I believe that you died on the cross for my sin. And I believe that three days later you rose again. And right now I'm not trusting in me, I'm trusting in what you've done for me. I'm asking you by faith to save me. Wherever you are with nobody looking around, would you just lift up your hand if this is the moment today that by faith you begun a personal relationship with Jesus to go, God, I want, I want you for the first time, 
you said, I believe, and I'm gonna place my faith and trust him. Would you just lift up your hand real high for me? This is the, the most powerful, life-changing, eternity-shaping decision that you're ever gonna make. Yeah, yeah, come on. Anybody else would just say, this is the moment for me. I've experienced this throughout every service all day long today. Let me just pray for you right where you're at. Jesus, I pray for those who are taking this step right now. I pray that you'd give them the courage to even grab that card right in front of them that says, I've decided and take it to somebody at the after party or connect desk just to give them a Bible, answer any questions if they have questions and actually begin not just to make a momentary decision, but begin to go as best I can. I have a lot of unanswered questions. I wanna follow you, Jesus. And they take a step, whether it's next steps, whether it's starting point for brand new believers, class that we offer here, I just pray that you'd give them the courage to not just make a decision, but take a step, begin to follow you. And I pray that you would just confirm even in these next hours, the decision they've just made to go, Jesus, I believe and I trust you. And we pray this and we thank you to be a part of this in Jesus' incredible name, amen. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed this message, would you do us a favor and rate and review our podcast on your favorite podcast catcher? You can actually now listen to us on Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Apple Podcasts. Basically, this just helps us get the message of Jesus out to more people. And the other thing I would say is we would love for you to join us at one of our gatherings. One of the things we work really hard at is to create a safe place for people to be able to ask questions, to be able to investigate and grow in their faith if they're longtime followers of Jesus. And one of the things that we say a lot is regardless of what background you're coming from, you can belong here before you believe. And so if you want more information about our church, our location, service times, just go to our website at centerpointfl.org.